If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In January 1973, Richard Nixon was re-elected as President of the USA in a landslide victory. But as he began his second term, Nixon was dogged by the ongoing fallout from a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C. in June 1972. King Richard, a new book from the author and reporter Michael Dobbs, tracks the following 100 days, bringing together thousands of hours of newly released taped recordings to detail the crucial days, hours and moments when the Watergate conspiracy consumed and ultimately toppled a president. Putting the questions to Michael was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Your book is King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy, and it's an account of one of the most notorious political scandals in American history. It it covers a remarkable 100 days and many pivotal moments, and I hope we could perhaps start by introducing our our listeners to the time span of this account. Well, actually, uh, Watergate took place in June 1972, the break-in, but uh, my story begins in January of 1973, the following year, Uh, when Nixon is about to be inaugurated as president for the second time. And uh, he's really at the top of of his game. He has an approval rating of about 67%. He's largely put this Watergate scandal behind him. Nobody's really talking about it very much. And uh, he's about to conclude a peace agreement with North Vietnam. So everything is looking good for him. And then within the next three months, it all falls apart. So my uh, book is really about this Shakespearean tale of a presidency completely unravelling and the fall of a president. Yes, perhaps we can talk a little more there about the act structure, this kind of tragic element and and the way you choose to structure this account. Right. Well, it's uh, actually the title is King Richard, as you said. Um, which refers, of course, to Shakespeare's plays, King Lear and all the Richards' plays, but it also refers to uh, Nixon's mother's ambition for her son because she actually called her son Richard not after Shakespeare's two Richards but after the first Richard, Richard the Lionheart, and she thought uh, she marked her son out for great things. Um, So there's both a personal and... uh, 
historical and a literary reference uh, in the title. And uh, as I researched the book, you know, it struck me it followed the same pattern as a, a classical tragedy from hubris, Nixon thinking that, uh, you know, he could control the world and uh, nothing could threaten him, to it all very quickly falling apart. Um, there's a twist at the end, I mean, the, uh, which is obvious to that the hero doesn't die as he would in a Shakespeare play. Um, he keeps on fighting. So it's kind of got an American twist at the end. So there's a multitude of evidence you've brought into this book, um, constructing the narrative of this 100 days. And you write that no pivotal moment has ever been detailed so comprehensively. Can you talk a little about the scale of the evidence that you were considering uh, and the, the thousands of hours of tapes and such? Right. We're never going to get as intimate a look at certainly an American president, and I think any world leader, uh, as we have at Nixon um, during this period, because... Uh, not only are there, did he tape himself, and by the way, his taping system, as opposed to the taping, taping systems of previous presidents, uh, didn't have an on-off switch, so it would start whenever he entered the room. There are 3,600 hours of Nixon tape recordings, most of which only uh, were released relatively recently. So you can follow Nixon around the White House from room to room. In addition, uh, his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, was keeping a nightly audio diary, which is very revealing. And as the whole thing fell apart, his aides began taping each other in an effort to prove their innocence. And then, of course, there are huge amounts of memoirs that were written after the, after the fact, and uh, a huge amount of documenta contemporaneous documentation now in the Nixon Library out in California. So... Um, I mean, I think I I can't think of another episode in modern history or previous history where there's such a wealth of uh, uh, material, and the challenge that faces a writer is not, you know, as is often the case, uh, trying to find sufficient sources. It's that the sources are so rich, uh, you have to boil them down into something comprehensible. Yes, that, that makes sense. And I think I skipped us ahead a little there. And so I should have asked first about this taping that Nixon undertook. When when did this begin and why? And how rare was this act by a president to record themselves in this way? Well, the fact of recording wasn't uh, all that rare. Um, a number of presidents had done it before. John F. Kennedy did, did it during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, LBJ uh, Johnson did it. Um, he uh, recorded many of his phone calls, um, but they all controlled the recording. And so when Johnson wanted to uh, record a phone call, he would actually physically turn on the recording device. And as a result, we have about 700, 800 hours of Johnson uh, telephone calls. So the unique thing about Nixon, I mean, there's much more recording, um, but that he didn't control the recording device. So it's, uh, and he forgot about the fact that he was being recorded. So it's much more revealing than uh, the recordings of other presidents. So alongside these recordings, you, you've already said you have many different accounts and memoirs, such as that of Haldeman uh, and some other aides you've already mentioned. Can we, can we talk more about some of those around Nixon and their parts in the scandal and how they tried to frame or, or reframe their actions over this 100 days? 
Right. There were different types of aides. I mean, Bob Haldeman was actually the model for the modern-day chief of staff in the White House and probably in Downing Street as well, that he had a very efficient operation. Uh, Sometimes he also served as a buffer for Nixon. So Nixon would, you know, order uh, action against his enemies and Haldeman would delay in carrying out those orders. Um, But uh, he had another aide called Chuck Colson, who was, you know, believed that the president's orders should be carried out immediately. And uh, this is what got him into trouble with Watergate, because he had these multiple kind of channels. And he, uh, you know, he had aides who were competing against each other to carry out Nixon's orders and darkest wishes. Can we talk about those wishes a little more, this this culture of information gathering that was fostered and the climate that led to this break-in? Right. I think Nixon had a thirst for political intelligence. And he believed that he had been robbed of election back in 1960 during his first presidential run against John F. Kennedy. It was a very close election. It depended in the end on a few thousand votes in Illinois and Texas. Um, actually, Nixon had a much stronger case that he'd been robbed of uh, uh, an election victory than uh, President Trump did uh, recently. Um, So Nixon was determined that he would never be outwitted by the Kennedys and the Democrats again. Um, So when it came to the 1972 election, he wanted to gather as much uh, intelligence or dirt on his enemies as possible. And it was that uh, you know, desire for intelligence that really was the origin of uh, the Watergate break-in. There's no evidence that Nixon knew that his people were going to go into the Watergate to plant bugs. But as Haldeman said, Nixon may not have known about it, but he certainly caused it because they were acting on his wishes. It was rather like um, Thomas Beckett and Henry II, that Henry II said, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And his knights went off and murdered the Archbishop of Canterbury. And it was that kind of sort of implicit wish with underlings trying to show that they were loyal to the president and carrying out his instructions or even his wishes that led to Watergate. Could we mention briefly as well about this link to the Pentagon Papers? And I mean, it's it's all detailed in the book, but where this sits in this sort of culture and how that came to be linked with, with Watergate? Yeah, well, just to recall what happened, uh, the Pentagon Papers was the official U.S. history of the Vietnam War, which was leaked to the New York Times and then to the Washington Post by a man called Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, And it was top secret. It was published. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger uh, were up in arms about that and decided they had to find the leaker and discredit him. So that was one of the origins of Watergate, that uh, they sent in created a unit in the White House called the Plumbers. The purpose of the Plumbers was to plug leaks. And uh, they broke into the, among other things, into the uh, offices of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist out in California in an effort to uh, gain compromising material on Daniel Ellsberg. So that was a previous dirty trick, actually not only a dirty trick, it was a crime that was committed um, against Ellsberg. So they're all Watergate is not just the break-in to the Watergate complex itself, the Democratic National Headquarters. It's all these other uh, uh, crimes that the Nixon White House wanted to hide 
including the uh, attempt to gather all this compromising material on Ellsberg. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The aides all start turning on each other, one after another. It's a kind of chain reaction. And then they start turning on Nixon himself. And so it's really a story of, you know, how a very disciplined presidency can unravel. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. You've written in your account that there are so many hinge points during this 100 days in particular. What are, are the moments, if, if any, where Nixon could have averted what did eventually happen? Well, there's several moments. I mean, uh, John Dean, his legal counsel, comes to him in March of 1973 and says, look, we're being blackmailed by a man called Howard Hunt, who was... Uh, the uh, one of the people together with Gordon Liddy who controlled the burglars. And Hunt is demanding $150,000 or, or so in legal fees and uh, living expenses. And if he uh, doesn't uh, receive this money by the close of business today, um, he will blow the whistle on all these bad things that have been happening in the White House. Nixon at that point could have said, okay, we have to cut our losses here and come clean, which actually I think Dean expected him to do. But instead of doing that, he said, how much does Hunt need and how much do we need to pay off all these burglars? And Dean, rather surprised, says, well, perhaps a million dollars would do it. And um, then Nixon says, I think I know where that could be gotten. So instead of uh, you know, trying to cut his losses and coming clean, he got deeper and deeper into the conspiracy. I mean, that's just one point, but there are a number of others as well. Yes, and there are plenty of other such moments in King Richard. Uh, and what can you say about when these hinge moments all sort of start to coalesce into this eventual downfall? Right. 
Well, this is really the sort of subject of my book that this very disciplined White House from you know, being totally controlled by Nixon through Haldeman, uh, all the aides from being loyal to Nixon start turning on each other. Uh, Dean and others are trying to avoid responsibility for uh, Watergate uh, and for the subsequent cover-up. Dean in particular, uh, who's a lawyer, realizes that he could go to jail for for his role in Watergate. So... um, the aides all start turning on each other, one after another. It's a kind of chain reaction. And then they start turning on Nixon himself. And so it's really a story of, you know, how a very disciplined presidency can unravel. You know, here we have not only the later accounts and explanations, but we have contemporaneous recordings of what was taking place in the White House at the time, which makes it all the richer. Nixon used to say, well, you know, we're getting into a situation where everybody is pissing on each other and will then start pissing on the president. I mean, that's precisely what happened. Can we talk a bit more about that process then? I think one example you provide is is Nixon's habitual lunchtime dinner and how that symbolises his personal restraint and gives us that extra insight into his character. Can we talk about this and the other sort of details that really boil this 100 days down and and the people involved. Right. Well, the one you're referring to is actually a photograph, which is a bit difficult to explain to podcast listeners, but it's in the book. And it shows uh, the lunch that Nixon had day after day after day of a canned dole pineapple uh, topped by some revolting cheese. And he ate this, you know, partly because of his weight, Um, He wanted to control his weight. But, you know, somebody who has the discipline to do this day after day, even though he's president of the United States and can order anything he wants, you know, it's really was really mind blowing to me. And that really reflects the sort of discipline that Nixon brought to the uh, brought not only to the job of being president, but to to his entire life. There's a man who really invented himself I mean, the anecdotes are legion, but, you know, going back to his time in college, he uh, was a keen football player, American football, of course, and um, he uh, he wasn't actually all that good. He's a rather clumsy person. Um, he was clumsy with his uh, recording machines, and he was clumsy with the football. But he had this, um, you know, resilience that um, he would go on, be put on the field right at the end, and uh, the other side would knock him down. And he would be bashed about and would always, you know, get up again. And that's Nixon. Could we talk some more about uh, your work for this book that you did to talk to some people directly involved in the scandal? Can you tell us some more about that? Yeah, I spoke to John Dean, who's uh, still uh, alive and actually sort of writing books and tweeting madly. Um, And uh, I spoke before his death to Chuck Colson, um, and some lesser-known aides within the White House. Uh, and the value of that was that it kind of gave me a feel for Nixon personally and uh, how the White House operated. But there's so much uh, other source material that you don't have to rely on, you know, interviews decades after the facts with the principal actors. It's not a work of historical reconstruction. It's really a work of 
you know, being a fly on the wall to these incredible events. I mean, I feel that both I and the reader beside me are in the room um, as, you know, these people are facing the gravest crisis of their lives. Yes, I think that sense of pace as the day starts speeding by towards that final act is remarkable to follow, even when you might know what happens, as some of our readers might or listeners might. Uh, and as we begin to wrap up then, I did also want to ask about your own connection to the Washington Post, as it's obviously so thoroughly connected in Watergate history. Well, I was, uh, as you can tell from my accent, I'm British. I actually uh, started working for Reuters, um, The Guardian, as a freelance and I worked out in um, Eastern Europe in Belgrade. And then when the Solidarity Movement started in Poland, I had the great good fortune to be in Poland at the time. And uh, the Washington Post, uh, I was stringing, i.e. freelancing for the Washington Post, and they needed a full-time reporter. So I was there at the right place at the right time, and they hired me. And then I subsequently went on to work for them in um, Paris uh, and most interestingly of all, in Russia, just as uh, the whole system <laughs> was crashing down there too. So I, my first book actually was called Down with Big Brother, which is about the collapse of communism, uh, uh, describing not only my experiences, personal experiences in Russia, but also drawing on all the sources that became available later to describe that hinge moment in history. But that's really the origin of my own interest in what I call these hinge moments when, you know, our world is profoundly changed. And, and how is this hinge point in particular? How, how is Watergate's legacy able to be contextualised or quantified? Is it still evolving? Well, Watergate in the United States and probably all around the world is the archetypal, iconic political scandal. Uh, I mean, every other scandal is uh, now has the suffix uh, gate attached to it. So it's still very much there in the popular imagination. And the problem with Watergate, though, is that it's such a complicated, um, you know, multifaceted uh, uh, scandal with so many, um, you know, rabbit holes down which you can go that it's quite complicated to explain to a modern day audience um, you know, you can get lost in it. I mean, at the time, all these little developments were gripping, but uh, now I think some of the, those uh, intricacies don't probably don't mean very much to modern-day readers. That's why I chose instead to focus the book on the personal drama of the man at the centre, who is really the most interesting character of all, uh, Richard Nixon. Right. And with all his eccentricities, too. I, I mean, I never would have pictured him going bowling at the same time as he was <laughs> grappling with all these intrigues and allegations. Right. I, he, I have a couple of bowling scenes in, in the book. Um, his uh, daughter, Julie, reports excitedly in the middle of a meeting about Watergate that the bowling alley under the White House North Portico has been uh, completed and uh, Nixon goes down to inspect it. Yeah, that was one of the ways he liked relaxing, actually. Um, he, he was a very regular sort of guy, uh, Nixon. I mean, he came from a, a very poor background, climbed his way to the top. He And bowling was sort of one of the ways, I mean, he personally liked it, but it was also politically one of the ways to connect him to his natural uh, supporters. 
So you've obviously been familiar with Watergate for a long time, writing about it and around it. But is there anything in particular that surprised you in drawing so many sources together for these 100 days? Well, it's just the way they... I mean, you know, I haven't rewritten the history of Watergate. I think that's fairly well established. It's just the degree of intimate uh, detail and the insights into the personal reactions uh, of the people involved. Um, and, you know, the way in which it's a bit like the there are all these um, uh, uh, TV series like um, In the Thick of It and uh, Veep, um, which show the other side. I mean, they show it in a kind of caricature, caricatured way of life in Downing Street or life in the White House, um, you know, which sometimes borders on the farcical. And so, you know, I was able to discover a lot of that. There's a wealth of detail in the book, including some hilarious detail, I hope, that uh, you don't find in a typical Watergate, uh, a book about Watergate. That was Michael Dobbs. King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy, is published by Scribe and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on the 18th century battle for dominance between Britain and France. Hold up. 